Good evening. Hearings on Afghanistan. Are American military forces behind a coup in Africa as Washington prepares for another right-wing rally? With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. The Taliban former, uh, pardon me, the Taliban foreign minister urged the United States to show heart considering the country's dire economic situation, speaking at a press conference in Kabul today. Amir Khan Mutaki thanked international donors for raising a total of $1.2 billion as emergency help for the country. It comes as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, as well as the United States Treasury, suspended funding for the country quickly after the Taliban takeover. Mutaki said America is a big country. They need to have a big heart, adding that the U.S. should appreciate their collaboration during the American withdrawal and evacuation efforts. As Secretary of State Antony Blinken testified today before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, it was the second day of interrogation from GOP lawmakers critical of the Biden administration's departure from Afghanistan. In its opening statement, New Jersey Democrat Bob Menendez threatened to subpoena Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and other Biden officials who declined to voluntarily appear before the committee. I'm very disappointed that Secretary Austin declined our request to testify today. A full accounting of the U.S. response to this crisis is not complete without the Pentagon, especially when it comes to understanding the complete collapse of the U.S. trained and funded Afghan military. His decision not to appear before the committee will affect my personal judgment on the Department of Defense nominees. I expect the secretary will avail himself to the committee in the near future. And if he does not, I may consider the use of committee subpoena power to compel him and others over the course of these last 20 years to testify. And as Bob Menendez, New Jersey Democrat Bob Menendez, Menendez says he opposes any help for the Taliban government. He says despite Taliban claims, he feels the group hasn't changed. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken confirmed that large numbers of United States green card holders are still stranded in Afghanistan because they were not no, uh, because they were not a number one priority. Our number one priority is American citizens. And that has, I think, long, uh, long been the case uh, in this uh, situation in Afghanistan, in this emergency evacuation uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, we did everything we could as well to make sure that uh, legal permanent residents, green card holders, would also identify themselves to us. We don't like with American citizens. We don't know at any given time uh, how many there are in any given country around can, the world. Can, and to make available resources to help them. But our number one priority is any remaining American citizens who wish to leave. I didn't realize there's a secondary level of priority then for a legal permanent resident. If that's the case, how many of them approximately, you so said we don't know the exact number, but, but how many legal permanent residents are we convinced are still in Afghanistan? We don't, we don't have an exact number, but it's in the, I, but around in number the thousands. Pardon? In the thousands. In the thousands. Blinken testified the administration began planning for a worst-case scenario in, in Afghanistan in the spring and summer, including contingencies for evacuating the U.S. Embassy in Kabul in 48 hours and establishing control over the airport. Meanwhile, 
peace activists have formed a new organization to hammer home their response to the Afghanistan debacle. CutThePentagon.org says it's crystal clear the war in Afghanistan and Iraq was the wrong response to 9-11. The coalition contains various groups that have opposed the war on terror. One of the members is Code Pink's Medea Benjamin. The withdrawal was certainly chaotic, and there was a lot of well-deserved criticism during uh, the Secretary of State Blinken's testimony at the hearings in Congress, but uh, they didn't talk enough about the 20 years of chaos and bombing and destruction and uh, the uh, death that the U.S. caused. Uh, And I think, yes, it was absolutely critical to get out of Afghanistan. Should they have done it in a more organized way? Yes. And could they have? Yes, I think so. Uh, But let's give Biden credit for getting the U.S. out of Afghanistan. And let's make sure that uh, we let our Congress people know that it's important that we got out and that we don't want U.S. air wars to continue. I think this latest example of the drone attack uh, that they did before the uh, final uh, uh, closing of the U.S. presence at the airport Uh, was an example of how these drone attacks kill innocent people. Most of the time we don't find out about it because it's happening in rural areas and journalists can't get there. But this time we had the journalists there and they showed us that everything that the U.S. government military said about that drone attack was absolutely wrong and that it killed a a family uh, uh, with seven children. So... um, I think uh, in terms of where we go from here, we say the lesson learned is don't get into more wars, that war is not the answer, and that to uh, make that clear, we need to cut the Pentagon budget. Uh, Code Pink with a coalition of groups has just started a new campaign called CutThePentagonBudget.org. You can find it online. And we are saying that uh, in light of the disastrous 20-year fiasco in Afghanistan, and in light of all the needs at home for money for health care, money for uh, the Green New Deal, money for infrastructure, all those things, uh, we must cut the Pentagon budget. Now is the time. The people are ready for it. It's the members of Congress and the White House uh, that is not ready for it because they are so much in the pocket of the war machine. But if we speak out and we say no new Pentagon, uh, no increase in the Pentagon budget, we want a decrease, I think that's the critical message right now. Do you think they're going to listen? No, I don't think they're going to listen this time around because I don't think we're big enough and strong enough. But last time there was a vote and 93 members of Congress voted to cut the Pentagon budget by 10 percent. This time we have to double that. And then next time we'll be in a a better position to actually make it happen. So that's why we feel this is a a critical moment. We're building that momentum, making the Congress start to feel more pressure from us than they feel from these lobby groups. It's not going to happen this year, but it must happen in the near future. Medea Benjamin with Code Pink, one of many peace groups who have formed a coalition, CutThePentagon.org. In related news, conservative Missouri Republican Josh Hawley vowed on the Senate floor today to slow walk President Joe Biden's defense and State Department nominees until Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan resign.
I will not consent to the nomination of any nominee for the Department of Defense or for the Department of State until Secretary Austin and Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan resign. Leaders take responsibility for their failures. And the failure of these individuals, the failure of this administration, has cost Americans their lives and has left American civilians to the enemy. There must be accountability, and then there must be a new start. As conservative Missouri Republican Josh Hawley and opposition to the Biden administration will be on a parade this weekend. The United States Capitol Police is erecting a temporary fence around the Capitol in anticipation of a planned rally on September 18th by far-right groups defending January 6th rioters. The Capitol Police Board already issued an emergency declaration that will go into effect allowing the department to deputize outside law enforcement officers as U.S. Capitol Police special officers. Earlier today, Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was joined by Senator Roy Blunt to assure the Capitol was ready. Apparently there is supposed to be a gathering here on the 18th. Uh, the Speaker, uh, the Majority Leader, Leader McCarthy, and I had a meeting yesterday with the leaders of the police board. Um, I believe that they're well-equipped. Uh, to handle what what may or may not occur. I don't know. We're hopeful that the steps that they've taken to be sure that they have the right kind of backup from neighboring agencies, and of course nobody should be better than uh, than the chief to figure that out, having been a, a police chief in one of those agencies, uh, would, would uh, be a plan that they have a chance to be sure that is there whether they have to exercise it or not uh, and I guess if you're looking at the fencing issue uh, the test of how quickly it gets up and gets down uh, may be a better uh, thing to look at than to continue to talk about a permanent fence around the Capitol. A federal law enforcement source tells the media that far-right extremist groups, including the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, are planning to attend the rally with 300 to 500 participants expected. And across the world in Africa, the military heads behind last week's coup that removed Guinea's president, Alpha Condi, have begun a week-long consultation with political, religious, and business leaders that they say will lead to the formation of a transitional government. The September 5th coup led by Guinea's special forces has been condemned by regional bodies. The Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, suspended Guinea from its decision-making bodies and has called for a short civilian-led transition. But Institute for Policy Studies fellow Netfa Freeman says lurking behind the events in Guinea is the U.S. military presence known as AFRICOM, which trained the coup leader. He says the people of Guinea were happy to see the old government go, but there's a lot of apprehension about what the future holds. Guinea is a West African country on the coast of West Africa, about a million people. It's formerly a French colony. A lot of people speak French there. What happened there last mm. week? There was a coup d'etat that was executed by the special forces of the Guinea Defense Force, or the presidential Guinea Defense Force, that took the president actually in custody and then abolished or, or suspended the Constitution. These special forces, led by a man named Mamadi Gambouya, have been trained by the French and also a U.S. Africa command known as AFRICOM. They've been trained by them, and actually the special forces unit was 
just put together about a few years ago, 2018, at the request of the president, this colonel, Dumbuya, was selected to lead the special forces. They've been very instrumental in or very involved in the Western exercises ostensibly to fight terrorism. We know that AFRICOM and the U.S. forces are really there to, to make sure they have unfettered access to the resources of Africa and they don't really care about terrorism. Uh, what is AFRICOM? Africa Command is one of the command centers. The United States has eight different command centers around that facilitate their military operations around the world. And AFRICOM is the one that's in Africa. It was established in 2008 and has proliferated since the establishment of it, particularly under first, uh, it was established under George Bush, W. Bush, and then under Barack Obama has really proliferated across the continent of Africa and ex executes the military exercises and operations across the continent. Even the drone war that's in Somalia helped carry out the regime change in Libya from Muammar Gaddafi and has done just a number of things that are not very good for the continent. This is another school for uh, coup leaders like we had in the Western Hemisphere and in, in Latin America. They had the uh, School of the Americas. Yeah, it's very tantamount to the same thing in Africa. And one of the things that they'd admit, though, it's to to curtail the rising influence of China, because we know there's a cold war between the U.S. and China right now or the West and China. And China has a lot of influences and investments in Africa and also development projects. Unlike the United States and the West, it's not militarized in the continent, but the United States feels threatened by the economic power that China represents. And in these coups that we've seen in West Africa in particular, we can see that these are in places with large Chinese investments. Now, the U.S. denies that it's behind these coups, but we actually see some very disturbing connections between the soldiers that are there, like just now Green Berets were there at the same time in Guinea, in particular in Guinea, doing training operations at the time that the coup was taking place. So there's a lot of disturbing things that, uh, that indicate that the U.S. may be involved too soon to tell, but, you know, no spoken gum, but there's a lot of evidence already that shows that they may involve, be involved in these coups. But what is the situation for the people of Guinea right now? Alpha Conde, the president, was not popular and was widely unpopular. So right now you see a lot of people who may be celebrating what's happening. I'm sure they don't want a military coup and these promises to return to civilian rule they have yet to be seen and things don't look promising. They've already appointed a mayor of the Conakry that's a, was part of the military already. Because the president was so widely unpopular, the initial response from many people in the streets is positive or, or a relief. But uh, Good tactics by the United States then. They handle it well. Mm -hmm. But it's not about the who's the leader. It's about the system of neocolonialism that's with the problem in Africa. Netfa Freeman is a fellow with the Institute for Policy Studies. In a televised statement on Monday evening, the coup leaders announced they would be reopening all the nation's land borders starting today. Some have been shut after the coup, while other borders have been closed officially for security reasons before elections last year. And back here in the U.S., President Joe Biden spoke just moments ago in Golden, Colorado, to plug his $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. Biden says climate change resiliency is necessary to do battle with nature. You know, we have to invest in being more resilient um, because of the impacts of climate. The climate change is current today, not next year, not Ten years from now, and we have to make the investments that are going to slow our contributions to climate change today, not tomorrow. 
And here's the good news. Something that is caused by humans can be solved by humans. I've set a course for the United States to achieve 50 to 52 percent reduction in greenhouse emissions by 2030. And for us to reach that net zero emissions in the economy, well, economy-wide, across the board, by 2050. As part of that, I set a goal of having our country reduce 100 percent carbon pollution-free power by 2035. We can do that. We can do all of this in a way that creates good jobs, lowers cost to consumers and businesses, and makes us global leaders in an entirely new industry that other countries are really working hard to try to dominate. I just toured the Renewable Energy Lab, which I haven't been here, not the same lab, but I haven't been here since 2011. <clears throat> it was just started under President Carter and expanded under President Bush, H.W. Bush. Leaders of both parties have recognized that clean energy future is an economic imperative and a national security imperative and an environmental imperative. That's why my Build Back Better plan calls for significant new investments in upgrading research infrastructures. And that's President Biden. And Senator Chuck Schumer also spoke today about Democrats' legislative plans, but he spent some time pushing back against Minority Leader McConnell as a new budget deadline looms. Every member of my caucus agrees we cannot allow a government shutdown or a catastrophic default. To prevent both of these from happening, it will require bipartisan cooperation, just as we've done in the past for three, three times. Democrats voted when Trump was president to renew the debt ceiling. We didn't play games. We didn't risk the, the credit of the country. We did it. And that's been the history. Senator McConnell seems to be trying to break new ground by saying that we should let the country default. I'd ask you to ask each Republican senator, are they willing to vote to let the country default? Ask them. We'd also ask the business community to start weighing in on the danger to default to the entire economy, which will hurt every single person in this economy, our veterans, our elderly, our young people, you name it. So this is risky business and dangerous business that Senator McConnell is involved in. And it's the first time a few years ago he said, of course we have to have bipartisan efforts to avoid default. You can't keep switching as he's doing. When the Democrats are in charge, it's one way. When the Republicans are in charge, it's another way, particularly on something so vital and sacred as the full faith and credit of this country, which generations have spent years building up. Senate conservatives have said they'll filibuster any attempt to raise a debt ceiling uh, that they can, closing off one of the Democrats' pathways to avoiding a U.S. default later this fall. While the GOP has vowed it won't give Democrats the affirmative votes they need to raise the borrowing limit, the party could theoretically decline to filibuster a debt bill, allowing Democrats to increase the nation's credit cap with a simple majority vote in the Senate. But Senator Ted Cruz said in an interview he won't allow that to happen, echoing his budget's growing his party's growing insistence that default be avoided along party lines using the budget reconciliation process, a tactic Democratic leaders have thus far uh, stayed away from. Democrats have the full ability to raise debt ceiling as part of reconciliation, Cruz said. They want political cover, he added. 
And closer to home, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced a five-point emergency relief Rikers plan to address the rising concerns over inhumane conditions at Rikers Island, where there have been five suicides in the last nine months and 10 deaths in the last year. Rikers relief plan, and it's going to allow us to do a number of things quickly and differently. First of all, we're going to bring in the NYPD to provide the staffing support in the courts as many places as we can. It'll start at one level, but we hope to ramp up from there quickly. In our court buildings, rather than correction officers having to be there, NYPD officers can cover that role. Correction officers can be back at Rikers where we need them. The NYPD has operated in the courts, obviously, for a long time and handled these kind of roles. That's going to be a crucial piece of the equation. Also, we have to speed up the intake process at Rikers. This is a fundamental problem. There's a lot of reasons, very much based in COVID, why some of these pieces got slower. It's not acceptable. It has to be addressed. Everyone has to be moved through intake on a timely basis. We're going to be opening up two new clinic spaces that have currently been closed. Look, the original goal, of course, was close down as much of Rikers as possible and our plan to get off Rikers. And we wanted less space because it took fewer officers to cover less space. But we now need to open up two clinic spaces that are currently closed to add capacity to speed up the intake. Emergency contracting. There are areas in Rikers that need immediate work, uh, broken doors. There's cleaning that needs to be done immediately. We can do that much faster with emergency contracting. That will be part of the executive order. The additional areas we need to be clear about expanding the medical capacity in Rikers. We'll be using contract medical providers to evaluate officers to make sure every single officer is on duty who should be on duty. Anyone who's out sick for more than one day will have to go to a doctor for an evaluation or provide appropriate documentation. If they don't, there'll be suspension without pay for 30 days. Any staff member who is AWOL will be held accountable with a 30-day suspension without pay. We understand tremendous challenges have existed in Rikers before the pandemic, and the pandemic made them worse. We understand it's tough work and a tough environment. But folks not showing up for work is unacceptable. And when any officer doesn't show up for work, they actually put every other officer in danger, and that's not acceptable. So we're taking these actions to relieve pressure on the situation. And de Blasio also called for the implementation of aspects of the Less is More Act, which was passed by both houses of the legislature but not signed by the governor. He called for the speeding up of both court cases and transfers of inmates between state inmates as well as the use of supervised release for nonviolent offenders. The Less is More Act would uh, target the fact that uh, New York State leads the nation with the most number of people in jail because they were violated from their parole on technical grounds, not for committing another crime or doing anything else that was wrong. That was one way that many people could be released from jail. And finally, yesterday, WBAI reported on the mulched tree in Manhattan over at East River Park, where activists believed it was the beginning of the city's attempt to cut down 1,000 trees in order to begin construction of a flood control project. We received a letter today, an email from the Parks Department saying that the allegation regarding the tree pit in question is false. 
The pit has been empty since at least 2018. Our staff frequently replenishes the pit with wood chips to mitigate tripping hazards, hence residual chips at the site. And then regarding the tree tags, which we mentioned, the 991 trees, many of them had been tagged. Our foresters are surveying the trees in East River Park to identify which could be salvaged and reused. Small metal tags are being affixed to help us track the data. We are working to select a vendor with expertise in the wood reuse field and hope to make a selection in the fall of 2021. They go on to say, as the city's tree stewards and experts, they are our responsibility. We take their care seriously, and we don't remove them casually. The Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project will nearly double the number of trees in East River Park, increasing to more than 1,800 with 50 different species. And they go on to say the project will save lives and provide much-needed flood protection for more than 100,000 New Yorkers in the area. The critical open space improvement project will ensure that these waterfront parks are accessible and resilient for the surrounding community in the face of our daunting climate future. And that was an email I received from Megan Moriarty of the New York City Parks Department saying that, in fact, the tree that was mulched yesterday had been mulched several years ago and was not part of any move. They went on to say that construction has begun but in the southern parts of the park, uh, below the park, actually, in the lower Manhattan area along the coast of the East River, and that the area that is encompassed by the 50-acre, mile-and-a-half-long East River Park, construction there will begin, according to the Parks Department, in October. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. The news is produced Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>